school, you skip class in high school, maybe you skip university, which is really a bad idea because you're paying big money for those classes, okay? But you skip a class because you go with your friends and you want to go to a movie, you catch a matinee at the movie, and you somehow cover it up so your parents might not ever know. Uh, so the whole thing's actually a, quite a thrill, isn't it? It's not good, though. Um, but the reason that you skip school is because you felt like, I need to escape the slavery that is called school. i got to break out of that place. It feels like slavery. I don't like it. It's so constricting. Problem is, while skipping school, taking a break from school, feels fun, feels like a, a break, actually skipping school is slavery, you see. It's slavery because the more classes you skip, the more school you have to take, okay? Also, it disrupts or potentially could disrupt your future. So it's actually enslaved you to not reaching your fuller potential. So the key is actually going to class, going to school, so that your pathway to your career success and moving forward, well, that's the freedom. You see, the problem that you've done when you skip class, like I did, is you mistook freedom for slavery and slavery for freedom. That's not tracking, is it? Okay, let me give you another example to try to bring this home a little bit. Some of you, I won't point fingers, because if I did, that would be a bad idea. Some of you struggle with eating too much like I do, okay? And it's a real struggle, and it's not fun. Recently, I felt like I was making a little bit of progress basically the first half of July, you know, getting back on track again. I'm, I'm on and off this wagon all the time. It's really, really disappointing. But I'm, I was back on the wagon trying to eat less, rain in the eating, okay? Then we go on vacation the third week of July, okay? And what happened? What happened? I need help. I need help. So on vacation, you know, you know how this goes? Have, have you ever done this before? You go on vacation and you say to yourself, don't worry, I'm just going to let myself eat whatever I want. And then once, the minute, the second I get back from vacation, I'm going to go back to self-control, back to the diet, back to, you know, restraining myself. So for now, I'm going to eat that another pound of bacon. I'm going to eat that donut. I'm going to have a few more slices of pizza. I just want to be free from the diet. Now, do you think that I, the minute I got home, that I went right back into self-control and self-restraint? right back to my good eating habits the minute I got back home. No, obviously, I did not. I did not. I'm still not. I'm still not there. I need help. So how did this happen? Because my freedom to eat badly that week became a, a form of slavery, right, to food. And I'm still kind of stuck in some of that slavery. To f freedom was actually slavery. Slavery was actually freedom. And reigning in my eating is actually, that's the key to helping me get free from overeating. You see how that works? And it's this kind of dynamic, except in a much more serious kind of way, that we see in this passage. And some people in the church, back in the day, in the first century church, can you imagine this? Some people, some Christians in the church, they thought that it was okay to live a life of so-called, in their view, freedom. I just want to be free. But in actuality, they were living lives of of slavery, slavery to sin, slavery to addiction, going right back to the things that they were doing in their pre-Christian days, okay? And, and that whole lifestyle that came with that. And thinking, it's perfectly okay to go back to the way I was because I'm a Christian now, Jesus died for my sins, I'm free. 
and now they're teaching newer Christians to do the same kind of thing and thinking this is okay. So this was actually happening. It was a big, it was an increasing, growing issue in the ancient church that the Apostle Peter was writing to. And here we are in the 21st century, a couple thousand years later, and we, there's a lot for us to learn from this. We might think, well, that's not going on in the church today, but I would argue it is, it is happening. And, it, and it usually, if it is happening in a very open kind of way, there were steps to get to that open kind of way. So we want to sort of nip this thing and this tendency to see freedom for slavery and slavery for freedom in the bud. So on that happy note, <laughs> okay, you ready? ready to dive in to a very intense passage yet again. Uh, we're going to begin in, in our notes. There is a sermon outline in your bulletin if you do want to follow along. And number one, the first point I want to offer to you is simply leave ultimate judgment of others to the Lord. Leave the ultimate judgment of others to the Lord. I'm hearing a noise. I don't know if it's this thing. No, it's not. Okay, let's, we'll just leave, ro roll with it. Um, this is what we learn from the first uh, little couple of verses in our passage. And when you read these verses, they kind of sound a little confusing. If you see, if you have the passage in front of you, I'm, I'm going to reread uh, verses 10b and 11, where Peter says these words, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, they do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Sounds kind of weird, right? I mean, this is a little difficult to unpack, so bear, let's get into it and try to sort this out. Um, this passage that we're looking at today is a continuing thought from last Sunday, and here's the quick background that I shared last week. What it seems like is some very bad pastors, some false prophets, false teachers, quietly and secretively almost infiltrated the ancient churches that were in ancient Europe and ancient Asia, and that's why Peter is writing this letter. So these are bad pastors in every, uh, you can imagine, I mean, just bad, twisting the gospel, uh, using churches to serve their own selfish agendas and their own desire for power and for sex and for money. I mean, this is, this is not good. Then here in verse 10b and 11, Peter confronts these guys. He's, he's just railing against them. And he says, they do not even tremble when they blaspheme angels. I mean, it just sounds really weird. So here's probably what was going on. These bad pastors were railing against the fallen angels, probably the ones that were mentioned in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. These were the angels, the bad angels that disobeyed God because they started having relations with human women and then a whole new race of beings called the Nephilim came out of nowhere and it was just kind of weird. We don't, we don't bank all, much theology on that passage because that's the only mention of that going on. But it's just really weird. But the, the lesson was, well, they disobeyed those angels, disobeyed God. Now these, to, to really confuse you, these bad pastors are coming along <laughs> And it's almost like they're looking for some, a convenient scapegoat. To They're trying to blame and blaspheme these bad angels and, and basically as a diversionary tactic from themselves and their bad behavior being called to account. And so they're trying to blame Satan for all the bad stuff that these angels, these fallen angels did, and yet their own behavior is, is satanic. It's just really strange. But here is Peter's point that he's trying to drive home for us today. He's basically saying, would you have some respect for the spiritual realities? Uh, interestingly, elsewhere in the New Testament, Jude verse 9, uh, it says, Jude says, not even the archangel Michael, so this is a prominent angel in and amongst God's host of angels, 
Not even this prominent Michael Archangel would ever speak to the devil in a flippant kind of disrespectful way. Why? Because as the ESV study Bible says, good angels like wise humans do not take these evil powers lightly. That's the lesson. Do not take evil powers lightly. So that's what we can learn. And my best shot from something to take home here is, you may have noticed, generally speaking, we live in a world that is rather hostile towards the ways of Jesus, rather hostile to biblical ideas, biblical principles, rather hostile towards Christianity. And generally, what is wrong is applauded. Yes. And what is right is condemned. What is wrong is applauded in culture, and what is right is saying, how could you believe that, you know? That's kind of what's going on. And so navigating our culture as a, as a Christ follower uh, is the temptation for us not to just sort of constantly judge the world all the time, rail against the world in many of our conversations at church, perhaps? Look how bad the world is. It's almost like a coping mechanism uh, against all this noise that uh, is, is sort of anti-Christian. And so, you know what we do? We judge the media. We judge Hollywood. We judge the political powers, because that's an easy target. We judge our non-Christian neighbors because, you know, they're smoking up again and that's wafting my direction and then the music and, and they're just really annoying. And then we're, we're judging our coworkers and our, our, we're getting all hot and bothered a lot of the time as a Christian. We judge them all to hell. You know, we enjoy viewing them in hell somehow because it's like, well, they're finally going to get their due for treating me so bad as a Christian. So the problem is with this. There's a, this is a problem, by the way. The problem with all of this, not only do you become sort of a nasty, judgy person that no one really wants to be around, but also it is not your job. It is not my job to judge people to hell and powers to hell all the time. Look, I'll prove it. Romans chapter 12, verse 19, the Apostle Paul instructs you and I. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is Kurtz. Is that in the text? Vengeance is yours. Is that in the text? Vengeance is mine, God says. I, I will repay, says the Lord. So, but what this means is we got to leave all the ultimate judging of our messed up world and of Satan and all his evil minions. That's God's job. It's on God's job description, not ours. He is more than capable of eventually meeting out ultimate judge, judgment and justice. He is all-powerful. He is almighty. Nothing is impossible for God. And in due time, when the time is right, only God knows when, justice will happen for all. Justice for all. Justice for all will occur. Jesus is the judge. You and I are not. It takes the pressure off our shoulders, doesn't it? Doesn't, doesn't it? feels good. It's like, I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to keep pointing the finger all the time at the world or at the devil. You know, it's, it's God's job to send them and to mete out justice as he sees fit in the end. So let us not take evil powers lightly. Let's just entrust all that's wrong with the world. God, you take it off my shoulders because you're more than capable to do so and you can be trusted to do so. Let's move on. That was number one. And uh, let's get into point number two. The second thing we see in our text is simply watch with whom you break bread. Watch with whom you break bread. Now, break bread is code speak for what in the Bible? Anybody know? 
communion, the Lord's Supper, okay? And that's, I'm, it's not in our text, but that's kind of what it seems to be alluding to. And the Lord's Supper is, we're a church that celebrates the Lord's Supper each and every Sunday, and we do it to remember and to celebrate all that Jesus has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. Basically, the sacrifice of Christ is the key to us being saved from our sins and from hell and being changed by the grace of God. And we celebrate this wonderful sacrifice that was done for us, okay? And what we need to do as we're partaking in this meal and as we're existing as a church family on mission, uh, we are to keep our eyes open. Just keep our eyes open. Now, not act in a paranoid sort of witch hunt fashion, but we just keep our eyes open. Just keep our eyes discerning. Just looking around, all right? And we get this from verses 12 to 14. Uh, my goodness, these verses are very colorful. I won't re-read them outright, but uh, one commentator refers to verses 12 to 14 uh, as such. This indictment is the most violent and colorfully expressed tirade in the New Testament. Okay, so this is intense. Let me list out the key descriptors that Peter uses to call these bad pastors out and call them on the carpet. Uh, they are in verses 12 to 14. These bad pastors are, you ready for this list? Irrational animals, creatures of instinct, blaspheming. They are blots and blemishes. That doesn't sound good. And then they're reveling in their deceptions. Look how deceptive I can be. Then they have eyes full of adultery. So they're always looking around for people to, to, to commit adultery with. Okay? They're enticing unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Peter says that they are, lastly, accursed. It's not, this is not a good direction in which to live your life or conduct yourself or try to lead a church in. I mean, this is pretty horrifying job description of a pastor for a Bible teacher. And again, if you think this would never happen in a 21st century church, you know, that was just back then. Now we've learned our lesson. We know better. We have, you know, uh, standards now. Uh, it doesn't happen today. You would be very wrong to assume that. I talked about one example locally, okay? I won't talk about that again, but it does happen. And it's in the courts right now. And you might think, well, it's just the Catholic Church, just the Catholic Church, you know, the priests that got into trouble there. It is not just the Catholic Church. It's in the Protestant Church as well. And so that is why Peter says in verse 13, all this horrific behavior by these bad pastors and by these false prophets, he says, um, it's happening when? When is this bad behavior happening? It's actually happening while they feast with you. Code speak for the Lord's Supper. Scary stuff. Let me ask you this, though, as I try to give you an example to, to consider. Have you ever had a meal, sat down with someone at a restaurant, Tim Hortons, McDonald's, uh, the Lux? Anyone eat at the Lux? That's a great place. If you like uh, Chinese food, but what's the specific? Dim sum? Oh, that's a great place. Anyhow, let's say you're, you're eating a meal with somebody, okay? And you're, but there's someone at the table. You're not quite sure about that person. You don't express it like I'm trying to express on my face. You're a little more subtle, a lot more subtle, hopefully. But you're not certain about this person because there's something about them that makes you feel at unease. And an example more specifically would be parents. If you have children, maybe this happened to you. Did you have that meal? Or if 
your kids are not quite of, of an age to be dating and, and to be seeking out a potential uh, spouse, uh, it, it's basically you, the, the thing that might happen is parents, you have the boyfriend over or the girlfriend over of your child, okay, in your home for dinner. And as you're eating maybe your sushi dim sum meal together, um, parents, mom and dad, are you not kind of sizing up the boyfriend especially? You're sizing up that boyfriend of your, your daughter, and you're sort of trying to, to gauge motivation. Like, what's the motive here? Is this guy, is he good news for my daughter, or is he bad news for my beloved, precious baby? Are you, you're doing this, right? Like, good parents do this. You're doing it because you dearly love your kid. You are protective. It's your job, dads especially to protect your little ones, your, 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 baby, your big ones as well. Uh, but you don't want anyone to mess with your child or, or pull them down or lead them in a bad, you just don't want that for your kids, right? Am I right? Same kind of thing in a church family situation. No, let's not size everyone up in a paranoid witch hunt fashion or in a weird way. You know, as we're taking the Lord's Supper, you're kind of looking around like this, like, I don't know about that guy. Let's not do that. Let's just keep our eyes open wisely Okay, carefully, lovingly to any sort of behavior, especially of church leaders. So if the pastor's acting kind of or really weird or even just kind of weird, or the elders or the staff or the deacons, deaconesses, or even any church member, if there's some weirdness going on, um, people who maybe who are greedy, enticing, unsteady souls, uh, power-hungry people, deceptive people, keep your eyes open. If you see anything that warrants uh, con- true concern, okay, talk to the elder team. That's why they are here, to help protect the flock in some way as God empowers. The list of the elder team and our deacons are listed on the back of your bulletin if you want more specific names. Let's move on to number point three in your notes. It is this, four words, pursue the right way. Pursue the right way. Now, you might be thinking, that sounds like such a kind of a patronizing, oversimplified point here. I mean, come on. Uh, give, us, give us more meat here, Kurt, okay? But really, this is the, the best point I can come up with based on the next section in verses 15 and 16. And this is what Peter is really driving home, this idea of pursuing the right way. And in these verses 15 and 16, if you have them in front of you, he regales us with a story from the Bible, from the Old Testament. That is the story of Balaam and his donkey, the talking donkey, no less. You may have heard this story if you went to Sunday school or vacation Bible school or camp uh, from back in the day. This is a story from Numbers 22 to 24. As it turns out, this story is actually quite a complicated story. Uh, this is Balaam. All that he did and all that he was, it, it's multi-layered. It's kind of confusing in some ways, somewhat complicated. But for the sake of time, let me try to boil down what is what Peter is, wants us to know and be reminded of. Uh, Balaam was a prophet from hundreds of years ago, in and around the time that God's people were rescued from Egypt on their way into the Promised Land, all right? And King Balak of a place called Moab, I should have got a Bible map, because I love Bible maps, but I forgot and I didn't put one in there. But King uh, Balak of Moab, he wants to hire Balaam, and Balaam, by the way, seems to be a prophet. He seems to be someone that is known for giving divine messages. Now, he doesn't necessarily be, is listed as a prophet of God, he's just someone who has some sort of spiritual insight and, and, and sight into the future and someone who uh, put curses on other people. And so King Balak thinks, 
I got to stop God's people from going through my nation, my land of Moab, on their way up to Canaan, which is the, and was the promised land for God's people. The reason being was uh, God's people went to war against two other nations before they got to Moab, and King Balak was paranoid. They're going to beat us up as well. So he goes to Balaam. He tries to convince and hire and pay Balaam to put a curse on God's people so that they won't come into Moab and won't disrupt his beloved nation. Problem is, God speaks to Balaam in a dream. He says, don't you dare. Don't you dare try to curse God's people. Don't do that. They are my people. So Balaam says, no, I'm not going to curse them, King Balak. Problem is, Balak, he's a very determined individual. He keeps trying to convince Balaam to curse them. He's like, here's more money, here's more money, here's more... Long story short, God allows Balaam to finally go have a personal meeting with King, King Balak. The problem is, it seems like on his way to see King Balak, God is identifying that Balaam, he's got ulterior motives now. It's, it appears that he's trying to obey God, but there's other things sinful that are going on within. And that sinful desire is that of greed. He's a money guy. Like money is his language. And he's trying to figure out, how can I obey God or appear to and still cash in in some way and work against God's people and God himself? So on his way to see King Balak, here's what happens. He is riding his faithful donkey, a donkey that he has owned and ridden and used for years. As they're going along to see King Balak, what happens? The donkey stops abruptly, just breaks her on. Now, if you've ever owned a donkey or ridden a donkey, you will know that these are not necessarily... Uh, unstubborn creatures. They tend to be very stubborn. But this donkey does not stop because it's simply stubborn. It is because there is an angel, literally an angel in front of the donkey that is stopping the donkey from going forward. And this angel is holding a sword, no less. So the donkey stops. Well, what does Balaam do? He starts beating his beloved donkey. Well, then God empowers this donkey to start a conversation with Balaam. This is amazing. Nothing is impossible for God. And if you ever have a donkey or your pet talk to you, probably should listen up. Hopefully it's God's voice and not the devil's voice. Anyhow, it's another sermon for another day. And so God allows this donkey to talk, and the donkey says, Would you stop hitting me? Would you, that's the first thing he said. Would you stop beating me? All right? At which point, God then allows Balaam, he opens up Balaam's eyes to the spiritual realm to then see the angel with the sword in front of of his donkey, and what's the first thing the angel says to Balaam? Would you stop beating your donkey? This is hilarious stuff here. All right, so obviously God cares about the animals, right? So that's good. So please don't beat any animal or mistreat them. That is not right. All right, but the thing is, then the angel goes on to confronting Balaam for his perverse heart, the motives of greed that are in his heart that he's trying to cash in while appearing to, to obey God at the same time. I like how the ESV Study Bible summarizes this story. and Let me quote that. God can even use a donkey to restrain someone who is following the way of madness rather than living as a rational, responsible human being. You know, there's a point there. Living the way of Jesus and living the Christian life, that's actually the most rational, responsible way in which to live. It's true. But here's a lesson that we can learn from Balaam's bad example. You and I, we must pursue the right way. Pursue, we, we, you and I must, we got to say no. We feel those desires within. 
and we got to say no to those desires, no to those motivations that want to subvert what you clearly know God wants you to do. For example, I'll just roll out a few examples here. Not fudging your taxes at all. Um, telling the truth relentlessly in your workplace, with your spouse, with your family members. Relentlessly weeding out those little white lies that sort of pepper our speech every day, or at least is a temptation to. This means saying no to viewing anything in your entertainment that can or will pull you down, not viewing anything on your smartphone that, you, that can or will bring you down. This means treating that annoying neighbor that I talked about. You treat that annoying neighbor with grace and with patience and the love of Christ instead of rage against the machine and, and, and anger and, and quiet judgmentalism. Is there, there is nothing worse than quiet judgmentalism. Would you agree? It's not good. That doesn't display the love of Christ. Anyhow, so pursue the right way relentlessly. We will do this very imperfectly, will we not? And when we sin, we take our sin to Christ every day. We receive his ongoing grace and forgiveness. But we must resolve. We must resolve to do and to say the right thing for the glory of God so that when people see your conduct, when people hear the words that you speak, they see your action and your conduct and how you live your life, they say, there's something attractive about that guy. There's something good about that guy. There's, there must be a God behind that guy. And, and they're attracted to Christ in and through you. And that is why we must live the right way. It's not for you. It's not to showcase your moral goodness or your virtue, to signal your virtue. It is actually to, to, for people to see Christ in you and see his love. All right, let's move on. We've got one more point I want to share with you, and it's uh, even less words. It's three words. Don't go back. <laughs> Don't go back. I was trying to think of a popular song, a rock song perhaps, that, uh, that used this lyric. I couldn't think of one, so I Googled it, and then, and then I came up with a, a guy, a singer by the name of Dennis Lloyd. Anyone know this guy? I'm so out of touch now with pop music. Anyhow, so he wrote a song called Never Go Back and did a whole tour on, on that song, apparently. But anyhow, so much for trying to make an interesting cultural uh, point to, uh, of reference to drive this point home, so it backfires. But anyhow, don't go back. Don't go back. Never go back. This is the main point that Peter tells us verses 17 to 22, and probably this is this, uh, part of the, the passage that really hit home the most for me, and I think it might for you as well. Let me explain. A key thing, a key point that these false prophets and these bad pastors are teaching the people in their churches is that it's perfectly fine for you to sin as a Christian. Do not, they would say, this is not me saying this, just be clear, this is what they would say, that's why they were bad pastors, do not deny yourself what your primal urges want and what your passions desire. You need to say no to self-control, you need to say no to self-restraint, because the Christian life is all about freedom. Christ died to set us free, that's what they would say. That's what they would say. He died to set us free. So now, use your new freedom in Christ, your new status as, as someone that is free in Christ, sin all you want, man. Self-restraint is slavery. Self-discipline, slavery. Holding back your sexual desires is nonsense. Do whatever you want to do. Do what thou will, which is the primary tenet in Satanism, by the way. Do what thou will. That's what they would say. They were teaching Satanism. Be free. 
Say no to slavery, they would say. So the problem with that philosophy and that, te- imagine that happening in church, teaching that kind of thing. I mean, but this was happening. And, and the problem is, according to Peter, these guys have confused something. They have confused freedom for slavery and slavery for freedom. They are now slaves again to corruption. End of verse 19, if you have that passage in front of you. Verse 19, for whatever overcomes a person, well, to that he is enslaved. I mean, it makes sense. Even outside of Christianity, in the world of addiction, whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And tragically, the result is for a Christian who who thinks this way and lives this way, it's seen in verse 20. Do you see verse 20? If you escape the defilements of the world by repentance and by faith in Jesus, and then again are mixed up in them and entangled in those sinful and, and sinful addic- addictions again, and then you're overcome. You're overcome. Well, Peter says that then the last state that you find yourself is actually worse than the original sinful state that you were in before you met Jesus. That is horrific. That is a, a warning that we need to hear. Let me run with the word pictures that Peter gives us in this passage. And they're, they're kind of funny and disgusting at the same time, especially the dog one. Okay, so we have a dog. Uh, so Peter is quoting, actually, the Old Testament, Proverbs 26, 11. <clears throat> I have to be careful because I'm kind of queasy when it comes to things like vomit and blood and anyhow, so I'll try to restrain myself. Uh, so it's not a beautiful dog, by the way. Okay, I think it's an Australian Shepherd. But let's imagine, I didn't, I, there are pictures on the internet that show dogs with vomit, and I thought, no, because that's going to start the gag reflex in me, and I, you don't want that when you preach. Um, <clears throat> so here's a dog. Let's pretend that it vomited. It happens. <laughs> Very disgusting. I am a dog owner, or at least my wife is, and I'm kind of <laughs> along for the ride. And uh, I've seen this. It happens, and then it's ingested again, and I hate it. I hate it. And one of the most disgusting, revolting things I've ever seen. Why in the world would a dog do this? Because it's a dog. It's a beast. And there's something within the dog's brain and heart with its beastly animal instincts that makes it want to re... It likes that. That looks good. I'm going to re-eat that again. I'm going to eat what I just threw up. See what I mean? This is really... Ugh, it's just give me the, making me cringe. Then let's move on to the other word picture, and I have a better time with this one. That is of a pig. Okay, let's talk about pig. I like pigs. I like pigs a lot because, well, guess what comes from pigs? Bacon, okay? So that's why I love pigs. I can't imagine life without pigs, okay? But pigs, though, are very disgusting. It's amazing that something as tasty as bacon could come from such a filthy animal, okay? But it, they do. It does somehow. And uh, But pigs generally are filthy. I used to live on a farm and about two miles from us was a pig farm. You have no idea how good you have it that you don't live near a pig farm. Like it just, you'd be eating your dinner and then the wind was just right and you're just like, not hungry, not hungry. <laughs> they are disgusting animals. So anyhow, let's imagine we got a pig here and they're, of course they're just walling around in the mud. That's what they do. So the farmer comes along. He's like, I gotta clean up this filthy animal and I'm gonna wash off all that mud, all that dung, all that bacteria, all that filth with my spray washer, and now that pig is looking sparkly and clean. Can we show the picture? There, no, there it is, there it is. <laughs> okay, amazing, it's like glistening. Now, so the farmer, after washing this 
filthy animal, and that, that is now clean. Well, it takes it back where? To its pen, because that's where it has to live. And what does the pig do right away? It makes a beeline for that filthy cesspool. It smells bad. It looks bad. It is bad. It goes right in, and it sees some, that cesspool somehow as an attractive place in which to be. Why? It's a beast. It's a beast. It's an animal. There's something in the heart of that beast, in its base instincts as a creature, as a beast, that it makes it want to wallow around in that disgustingness. Do you see what's going on here? Did you see where this is going? There is something in you and in me that makes us want to figuratively eat our vomit again. That makes us want to wallow around in the mud again. Into the wallowing, the, the mud of and the vomit of sin and addiction. What makes us want to go back? What, what's the pull? It says in Scripture, in our passage, the defilement of sin. So there's inward sin desires, flesh, beastly desires that remain in us, even as Christians. And yes, Jesus has obliterated the power, the dominating addictive power of sin in our lives through his cross. He died for our sins and he's, he's blown up that dominating power in our lives of sin. We're not to be ruled by sin any longer. However, there's still flesh desires within. And I believe that these flesh desires are still within us to, to actually teach and train us how to trust Jesus every minute of every day to lean on him for daily rescue from these inward desires. So it's actually a teaching tool that these sinful desires remain within us, in my opinion. But sometimes, in some cases, you will find Christians, they escaped the defilement of alcoholism, they escaped the defilement of drugs, they escaped the defilement of sex outside of marriage and porn use and self-righteousness and pride and, and virtue signaling and, and self-centered morality because it was all about them. And Jesus saved them from all those various defilements, the, the obvious the obvious ones and the not so obvious, and, but they're all defilements, and yet the vomit beckons. The mud beckons even as a Christian, and, and sometimes they, they say, you know what, I'm going back. I'm going back to the vomit. I'm going to roll around in the mud. I'm going to actually choose to get tangled up in sin again, and it's tragic. Let me just say, though, you know, I have to be careful because this, all of us in this room, I believe, sin, okay, even as Christians. And the, the danger of this passage is to, to just sort of give up on Christianity because we, we still sin. Let's just give up on the whole thing. Let me be clear. I believe that Peter is speaking about people, Christians, who are full on allowing the vomit to control their lives again. There's a distinction between sinning and then full on, I'm embracing that lifestyle again and all that came with it. You see, you see the difference? Okay. So if you're, let me just explain this. So let's give us some hope here, okay? Um, there's a problem with full-on embrace. Don't go that direction. Yes, some, you'll feel the beck and you'll, you'll hear the, the sirens calling you back into it. And we'll, we'll maybe go that direction. But before fully going that direction, getting fully absorbed in that old lifestyle again, there's hope. The fact that you don't want to go back to that, that's a good sign. That's showing that God is still present, okay? And there's grace for you. There's hope. For, it's never too late to come back 
to Christ and back to his right ways. And, and so if you want prayer after the service, come talk to me. I think Danny, Bill is here, and myself, we would be happy to pray with you after the service. Or even if you just want to become a Christian, we would love to help you with that. But here's what I want to make clear, and let me end on this point. The Bible is crystal clear, and is this not a great hope for you and I as Christians? That as a Christian, if you confess your sins as a follower of Jesus, He is faithful, He is just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so, come to Jesus every day with your sin. Take it to the cross. Receive His grace and forgiveness instead of going back to the vomit full on. That is not a good, wise direction. Let's pray and bring it in to a close with that. Lord, thank you for this passage. Very hard, very difficult to understand in some ways too and just very hard hitting. But I pray that we can take what you are trying to tell us today and benefit from that as a warning just to prevent us from going back to the vomit, going back to those, those sinful entanglements that messed us up to begin with. We do not want to find ourselves in a worse state than what we were in originally before we met you. So prevent us from ever going down that road. Uh, save us from ourselves. Lord Jesus, thank you for the grace that you make available to us each and every day. And we, we, in this moment, we, we give you our sin. We give you our addiction. And we ask you to cleanse us through and through. Remove that dominating power of sin in our lives and, and just free us from that. Lord Staying faithful and true and trusting in you is freedom and help us to know that. That's true freedom, living faithfully with you and in your ways. But we need your Holy Spirit to empower us toward that end. We can't live for you on our own. We are weak, you are strong. So fill us with your Holy Spirit in this moment. Fill us with your power in this moment to, to want to live for you, to want to live a holy life. We will fail, but we need you to help us fail less. And just use us to show your character, show your glory, and show your holiness to our lost world who needs Jesus more now than ever. Lord, we come to the Lord's table today remembering and celebrating all that you've done for us in and through and by your cross. We love you. Through Christ we pray. Amen.